So I want to get everybody into my funnel and then I can strategically market to them. And I have campaigns built out for people who have credit challenges. No problem. It's quick to know. Awesome. So it goes into our CRM credit and then it's going to market to them strategically at specific time points where I have thought might be best in my projected where I, if I had poor credit, what I would be feeling at each of those points to eventually circle them back around. You're declined based on credit income to debt ratios. I'm going to market to that non-subject properties. You lost the deal to RBC. Perfect. You need to find out when RBC payout penalty, when the IRD is going to flip to the next comparable term. So you lost the deal. Okay, well, it was best for the client. Now you need to input into your tracking when you can contact the client so that you have strategically enough time to do 120-day rate hold, knowing that their IRD is going to flip into a three-month interest, and then you can close it at the least amount of payout penalty before they're up for renewal. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Welcome to the I Love Mortgage Brokering Podcast. Today on the show, I have Christine Buman. Christine is a mortgage broker based out of Prince George, BC. Just an awesome person to chat with. I absolutely love my conversations with Christine, which is why this episode is a little longer than usual, but it's totally worth it. Christine did over 200 mortgages last year and just has an amazing process, really focuses on customer experience, and we dive into that today. A couple of takeaways from my conversation with her, one that I love, which is her concept of quick to know, which is basically quickly get to a no on a file if it's not going to be a fit and so that you don't spend a bunch of time on it. She talks about that. She talks about do the work before the work, which is trying to set your client up for success as well as the customer experience. There's literally so much in this episode. I was messaging Nikki about clip that section, clip that section, because I do that often when there's gold that I can use in my own business. So I think you're going to find this to be great. Before we jump into that, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application, document collection, submission platform designed specifically for Canadians. And it's easy for borrowers and for brokers. A couple of cool features. One, it's got smart doc. So as the client's filling out the app, knows what documents to ask for. This saves you time. It's got smart submission notes. So when you go to hit submit, it pulls key data from the application so that it makes it easy for your lender. And finally, it's connected to Lender Spotlight, which is the most robust tool for searching rates and guidelines. So you can go in and make sure you're sending it to the right place. Check them out at lendesk.com slash binmo. Also in this episode, I talked to Ben McCabe from Bloom about how reverse mortgage deal sizes are going down, what's causing that, what's the trend. Check out these conversations and I will check in with you soon. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So this is going to be interesting because we have two people with ADD and we're like, where are we going to go? Like, I don't know. We were talking so much, we couldn't even get the recording started. So I have a couple ideas of things I want to talk about. The first being specifically when it comes to the mortgage. Well, how are you first? This is my like, how are you doing? You know, how's life? How's the kids? All that stuff. Yeah, everything is great. I think that it's a loaded question for sure. I think that you know, everybody's sort of finding their footing in this post-pandemic world and trying to navigate kid emotions. For me, having a young family, being a mortgage broker will always be a stretch point for me, but everything feels good and no complaints. And how was last year for you? I'm sure it was a record year, like for most people, you guys had a good year? Yeah, it was record. And it was definitely interesting in that we expanded our team quite a bit. So it pushed 
boundaries within myself and my leadership that I didn't know needed to be pushed. And there was a very uncomfortable growth phase for sure for me as a human and as a leader and us together as a team, but it was a beautiful experience to share with really, really amazing people. And I'm grateful to have had that experience. Right. For sure. So if you don't mind, how many mortgages did you guys end up doing last year, like unit wise? Do you remember? So in like 2021 or 21, this one? Yeah. Yeah. 21 was 208. Right. That's fantastic. So, okay. Tell me about your team stuff that you've been doing. Cause I've been going through it in the brokerage side of things. Like well, I've got, I think 12 or 13 employees now, which I've never had before. But so what have you noticed about expanding your team? Yeah. Okay. So last year, 2021 was actually just one assistant. It was myself and my amazing underwriter. I had long COVID that was the year that I had COVID, which was a real challenge. And then she had a very serious life event that she navigated as well. So it really forced us to expand. And I would say that the unfortunate part is having to expand under pressure when you're forced to do it. So if anybody listening can try and proactively do that, it's a challenge for sure. But we ended up hiring and kind of navigating a few other roles, shifting things around. So we basically took inventory of our strengths and said, what is the highest and best use of each of our time? Understanding that there's no easy button and that some things are going to feel a little bit uncomfortable, but they're required to do. And we expanded in a way that was purposeful and I would say meaningful in that, you know, the client care person excels in customer I guess, appreciation, and she loves loving on people. So she does a lot of gifting and stuff for us. I haven't taken a step back as much as I probably should, and I'm working on that, giving up that control. But I think we're heading in the right direction, and that's all that I can really ask. Right. Okay, so Nish, last year you had you and an underwriter. So now you have you, you have a client care person, you have an underwriter. Give me the layout of the team. Because I've often thought like being a good mortgage broker, at least initially, until you get like 200 plus mortgages, is like beach volleyball. It's like bump set spike. You and an assistant can crush a lot of mortgages. Then it starts to get more complex the more bodies you have because now you're overlap. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm in this complex cycle. But give me the layout of what your team structure looks like and kind of roughly what they do. Yeah, great question. And we are really in a growth phase. So I believe that the only thing we know to be true is that everything we know to be true today will change. So we are very much changing roles. We're changing schedules. And and all I've asked for them is to be as open to change as possible as we navigate this sort of growth phase. And on that point, I struggle with labels and with titles. So Unless it's purposeful and maybe client facing that they need to see a specific label. I mean, does it matter if you call somebody an underwriter, an assistant, a manager, if it makes them feel good? I guess for me, the titles haven't really meant. Okay. So I don't disagree with you. I found that for me, what was helpful was creating an org chart and an org chart was essentially like, if you think of the soccer field, where on the soccer field are you? What's kind of your responsibilities? And it's not like, you know, like you said, if you got a client care person who's also really good at, you know, compliance, like let them do both. Like, it's not like this is where a title can actually limit you from realizing that, you know, this person who's got this title is actually better at this task from a different spot of the field. So then, yeah. but I guess to dive in there a little bit deeper. So walk me through the process. I'm a new client. I come in contact with you, get referred, walk me through who is doing what, and that'll help me understand sort of, even without the titles, I'll know kind of what's going on. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you. So lead comes in, it kind of goes through our process where we have a lot of automations. I believe in personalized automation. And so, for example, there's a template that we fill out so we can get ahead of any questions that I might need to be prepared for. So typically my phone is forwarded to our office. And then phone call comes in, which is great for people like us who have neurodivergent brains, because I can stay hyper-focused on what I'm doing. There's a specific template that we have them fill out. So that in itself will say like referral source, and then that sends a note to the client care person to the referral. It creates a contact card in each of our phones so that now we have all that information in our phones as well. And then typically they set up a call with me, or they just wanted to do the process because we try and serve our clients in the way that feels best for them. And we spend a lot of time studying our client behavior and trying to tailor our process to to not only what works best for us, but what suits best our ideal clients so that we can create more of those specific type of relationships. So yeah, a template goes out, set up a call with me. I usually have sort of a general process, getting a gauge on whether or not we should be moving them through. Then I send them the Finmo application. Let's go Finmo! <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Finmo. <laughs> totally. Um, and then once it comes back in, they get a welcome call, usually within four hours. That's my timeline. I have a very heightened sense of urgency. So everything should be done a little bit faster than you do the welcome call or somebody else. Somebody else does. So okay. a team member gives them a welcome call. They have a template that we have for if they have a lawyer, accountant, realtor and financial advisor. So it's already going to request these documents from the client, but how can we make this a better experience for them? And having that information is not only useful for helping mitigate some time that they may be spending on, you know, gathering documents, but also some gaps in where their professional circle could be. So that may be an opportunity for us to refer as well, especially if it's a purchase, right? Because there's no lawyer, then we know that there's an opportunity there. So welcome call gets that form filled out just walks through if there's anything specifically if they're trying to get bank statements or if there's any way that we can help support them in that way. We also really believe in asking as many questions up front as we possibly can. So we're going to ask them, were you ever previously married? Is there a chance you could be politically exposed? And we've really what tailored- What do you mean by politically exposed? So at the lawyer's office- I wouldn't want to answer that. I'd be like, what? So right? maybe that means I wouldn't be, or maybe I am. I don't know. And that's the thing is that question is going to be asked to you at the lawyer's office. Mm. So what happens if one of your clients is set to close tomorrow, they're rushing in to sign the lawyer's documents. And then the lawyer says, is there a chance you could be politically exposed? Like, what does that client experience feel like to that person? They're like, I don't think so. What does that mean? Are you trusting now the lawyer to give accurate information? And how can you get ahead of that question so that you can prep them in advance to say yeah. yes, or no. And what if they answer yes? And then the lender pulls the deal the day before closing. Right. I mean, it's such a slim chance, but if you can set the stage for the client. So in my intro call, I will tell them, we're going to ask you a series of questions. And in my experience, it might feel a little bit invasive. You might wonder why we're asking you these questions. What I want to share with you is that over the last decade and thousands of mortgages that I've done. I have been preparing or whatever. I can't think of my exact verbiage that I would use in the spot, but my goal is to keep you safe at every stage of the process. So what I would encourage you to do is if you're feeling like you might be wondering why these questions are being asked, be assured that they are very strategically placed in this process at this specific time to make sure that no surprises come up for you and that we keep you safe all along the way. It's just in your best interest. 
So when they get a call from somebody you on make our team, it all well, if you do make it all about them, then it makes sense why you're asking the questions. You're not just being like, hey, you know, what's your favorite color or whatever. Like, yeah. And then it's planting that seed in their unconscious brain because you and I know that the surface of our conscious minds talking to each other is just the tip of the iceberg, right? So like mm-hmm. how do we plant these seeds of knowledge so that the client is anticipating it? So then when the client starts to feel that way, their unconscious brain is like, oh, there it is. I was waiting for that unconscious question. I just chatted with a client yesterday and she's like, I can't wait to hear from your team and hear all of these super invasive questions. So right. for us, we get ahead. We have a whole slew of questions that we ask at that stage. And hopefully but with our team, what we're working on is quick to nose. So as they're going through the questions, are they quick to nose? Okay, so you're separated. Do you have a separation agreement in place? That's quick to know. If you don't, and you're just starting the separation, no problem. I wouldn't say it's a quick to know. It's a not right now. Let's pivot because I don't want to go all the way down this road with you and then see you back in six months because that's been my experience. And that's what I've decided for my flow to look like. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, this is awesome. Okay, so you got my wheels turning here. So I love this phrase, quick to know, right? Yes. Which is you're looking for. So how many questions do you have in that? How long does that call take? And so how many questions depends, you we're have? working on speeding up that call. Um, and I'm happy to actually share them. Anybody wants to. I would love to see a copy of those questions. Mm-hmm. It'd be amazing. So if you could send them to me and reach out to Christine, she's amazing. And okay. So give me like yeah. how many approximate questions and how long does that call take? It depends on how many we can answer from the FIMO application. So for me, it's all about doing the work before the work. So you should only have that one call with the client and you need to get as much information as you can as possible. If they're self-employed, we have a self-employed document. You need to know where do they get their business from? What's their website? How many employees do they have? What's their gross revenue? Was their business impacted by COVID? What are they doing in the field? Like there are a series of questions that need to be asked. So what I'm working on right now is whether that's best served to be done up front and like the best place in the process, some of those additional things like BFS. But I would say in general, oh gosh, I I don't know, probably 30 questions. Um, And it really depends on them. If like how many non-subject properties you have, because now we're going to dive. Now there's a whole bunch more questions. Yeah. There's a whole bunch more questions, right? Yeah. yeah, Exactly. Are there any other owners on these non-subject rentals? Oh, that's a good question. It's like one of those things that catches you and you're like, crap. Now all of a sudden you got to bring in another person or another agreement. Like, yeah, just weird things like this. So so you just said two things, quick to know and do the work before the work. You should have like this on a shirt, do the work before the work. Quick to know. You got like these little slogans. Um, Sorry, keep going. So all of the questions that I ask are very, very strategic and they're very specific. And they might not be for the reason that the client or you thinks that they're for. So for example, everything for us is based on how we want the client to feel at the end of the client journey. So we might ask you questions so that you feel as though we are taking care of you in a specific way. Give me an example of something that you would ask because this will be helpful. And it may seem like, huh, but you have a very strategic reason for it, but it's not obvious to the customer. Right. Okay. So an example would be, do you have a preferred way of communication or is there a specific day or time that is best for us to connect with you? And again, I'm obsessed with words. And if the client says nine o'clock on a Saturday, there's no chance I'm meeting them. Because my office hours are eight to six, Monday to Friday. There's a very slim chance I will meet with anybody outside of nine to five. But they now feel like they're in control of when they get to communicate with me and that they now have this opportunity to communicate outside of the regular time. Because the majority of people, we also track their answers, right? And you and I know that how much I like tracking data is we track their answers. And the majority of time they say, 
no, I'm good whenever, or it'll be somebody's open camp or whatever. And then we'll say, absolutely. We will do everything we can to accommodate that schedule for you and whatever. And it's been noted, right? Right. So now the client has the feeling that we're available to them, but we have also maintained control and we will keep the communication within that framework. Yeah, exactly. That makes sense. Okay. Just the fact that you even asked the question shows that you care. I got to imagine with this level of upfront work, what are your funding ratios like? They got to be good. Yeah. So submission to fund. Yeah. yeah, I would say like 85 to 95%. Yeah. And it's only just because something weird comes up or client changes or mine or something. Yeah. Or we have a lot of like property issues here. So yeah, we would okay. never pull a deal from a lender relationships are extremely important to us. And I would say because of the level of information we gather up front, we get way more exceptions than other people wouldn't because we don't just send in a deal and say he's on salary. We'll say client earns $52 an hour. At the minimum guaranteed 40 hours a week, we are job letter pay sub tax returns for every single pre-approval. Clients are not allowed to sit and talk with me. <laughs> when I say sit and talk, have the 20-minute phone like strategy session until we have all the documents. In my mind, how could you accurately give someone information on what they qualify for without seeing their job letter and pay stub and tax returns? And so why are tax returns important? So now they're earning $80,000 a year. You have salary. Let's say it's February. They started their job in November. And they're getting an $80,000 a year salary. Well, if their last two years have been 25 and 27 for their income, and if there's any variation or if there's any surprises that could possibly come up, now you're leaning back on this level of income isn't standard for them. Or if they have a higher level of debt. So now the lender's seeing, okay, this person makes 80 grand a year and their debt level doesn't match what they should be having in savings. Well, then now you can say, this is the reason why you need to have a really deep and clear understanding of the client situation, not just for this specific mortgage, but for the longevity of the relationship and to be able to call them back and say, okay, well, are they going to maintain this job? Is this job an anomaly for them? Because if they get let go, then that's another level of risk, right? They don't have fallback. This job is not consistent with what they're able to earn in the long run. So let's make sure that our plan and our strategy is in alignment with their entire picture. Right. The other thing that you said, you said you're always thinking about the language. One of my mentors once told me everything lives in language. So the words you choose really matter. And the fact that you call it a welcome call, like when you said that, I was like, ooh, that's good. Because a welcome call is an assumption that we're working together. It's like, welcome to the family. It's like, welcome to Disneyland. It's like, you're already here. You're in. Like, it's not a, hey, even though in the back of your mind, there's a quick to know because you're like, hey, I'm trying to make sure that I can serve this person at the highest level. Their experience of being called a welcome call is like, that's pretty cool. And so in that welcome call that your team member does, how long is that call? Like, and what is the purpose of that call? I'm curious. We're actually just shifting it right now. We are doing as many of the questions as we can because we want to get to the quick to know. So we get them to sign a document, giving us permission to contact those people, their professionals. And then we were doing snap and away, but obviously not right now. And then it'll be a series of questions. So when that application comes in, we do the work as soon as it comes in, we pull credit. We know at that point, like, so this is a great example. We just had one come in and the pre-approval limit, which most of the time, again, we study our clients' behavior. So most of the time, like, we just want to see what we're pre-approved for. But I also want to be mindful of expectations. Let's just say they say 380. This is what happened. The client was like, okay, ballpark 380. And they only qualified for 160. So I'm job letter based of tax returns. You know, our team is doing this deep dive. We are committing our time and energy to helping this person get to where they want to explore these specific numbers. 
Well, yeah. what's the point if we're nowhere near? So, okay, there's a quick to know. And when I say quick to know, it's not necessarily a, we're never going to work with you. We're firing you as a client. It's not quick it, to never. It's just quick to not now, right? Like Exactly, exactly. Right. So then we go back and say, here's the information. I have a very structured template where clearly we all can recognize anyone who knows me that I talk too much. <laughs> I talk a little on the heavy side. So I try to minimize that for my clients because it can drown the experience a little bit. So I hyperlink everything. In my template, I'll say, and I've got animated videos that I do for everything. Here's how income to debt ratios work. Here's some calculators so that you can play around with so you can explore different scenarios. Here's what your credit score is and why. Here's what's reporting on your credit report because sometimes the visual digestion of your numbers is a lot different when you're like, oh yeah, I do pay $1,100 a month for a vehicle and then have a student loan and then have three credit cards and also the line of credit. Right. Okay. Because a lot of people are just navigating their lives on you know, autopilot and they're maybe not recognizing the level of debt that they carry. So anyways, all of these have been very strategically placed in a strategic order so that they can go through it one step at a time. And I will still do that process with them, but I will just put in, you know, rather than saying this is the confirmed income, I'll just put in $47,000 as per year application. And here's the price range that you're looking for. Here's an estimate budget. So I've got budgets built out that will give estimates for home insurance, for property taxes and all the things and a total monthly expense. So here's an estimate of what your monthly expense would be on the $380,000 you know, price point that was your ideal. In order to qualify for that large of a mortgage, you would need X amount of income for whatever else. So are there any other income sources that you can add? And then usually I'll have a phone conversation with them at that point. But I would say if they want to, at that point, a lot of people are like, whoa, I saw a $380,000 house. And now I'm saying 380 because this is my small town market, but we can talk right. bigger brothers. But it's, um, there's a disconnect there for a lot of people. Like, why are I going like, That's like a, in Toronto, that's like a half a condo. Like you're getting like half the kitchen and, uh, you know, sorry. <laughs> like a park bench. That's it. Yeah, a park uh, bench. Shared. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, so the point of it is I try to minimize the time and energy that we spend. You know, I pay everybody salary or hourly. So our team is committing time away and it's not purposeful for the client. They're not having a great experience if they're gathering all of these documents, especially if they're investors, because we do have a fair amount of investor clients. So if they're gathering, you know, additional information and I can see on their credit report, I've got an investment worksheet that I built. So I can just plug the numbers in pretty quickly and see where that's going to land. Yeah, that was a really long way of answering your question. Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm having so much fun. So one thing you said, we said a bunch of things, but you said animated videos. And so I love that. And there's a concept that, you know, you've got your quick to know, show, don't tell. So in sales or when you're trying to explain things, especially with numbers, when you can show people, it's just going to click better. They're like, oh, I see it versus, sorry, you don't qualify. And like, oh, I don't like your answer. And now when you show them, they get it. And so I think that's a powerful thing that you're doing. So they do the welcome call. And they're basically asking them to fill out the app and stuff, right? Hey, welcome to, this is the next steps, yada, yada. And then I go right to app. I get right to business. I have tried to create our process as efficiently as possible that by the time they're phoning me, and it's also a bit of a different in a smaller market, but um, I don't really do the lead. Like I don't really do that sort of that dance. I go right to, I can't give you advice until I know what you qualify for, until I have a deep and clear understanding of your situation. And I choose sentences like data integrity is very important to me. So if I'm providing you information, 
I want to be confident that the information applies to your specific situation. Otherwise, I'm doing a complete disservice to you to set your expectations outside of what's going to be available for you as far as options go. And people are like, uh, yeah, that's great. That's great. If you guys are listening to this, pause, go back, write that crap down. That was so good. <laughs> Data integrity is very important to me. I've also used the phrase like the one thing that I don't like is a bait and switch. Promise you something and they can't get it for you. So it's the same idea, but I like that better. That's even more. And I also want to gather data. Better. I have been gathering data as intentionally as possible <laughs> since I became licensed. And I would say just because someone doesn't use you, like it's so important to take a holistic view of your business, of the industry in general, but A, you need to be tracking every single thing that you can about a client, including their children's names, their birth dates, what they like, how they interact with you, how they interact with your team, how they interact with their realtor. So what I like about that choice of words is that it just sounds good. It sounds really good. So, so and I remember now what I was going to say. So it's important to me to just get them in the door because then they're going to go into my funnel for adding value. So I have my VIP club, shameless plug for VIP. They're like a Scott Peckford fan here. <laughs> Anything that well, you know, I don't sold that company, but yes, anyways. Gathering data is so important at this stage because you might not do this mortgage and that is absolutely okay. And you need to take that off the table. You need to be approaching this as how can I serve this person to the highest and best of my ability? So you're going to gather the information on their non-subject properties. Mom and dad are going to co-sign. Awesome. What does their mortgage look like? You're going to look at their business for self. You're going to look at all of these additional things that you can contribute value to. And just be mindful that you're just gathering data. The solution is going to be whatever it ends up being. You don't know at that initial stage because you don't know enough about the client at that point. So I want to get everybody into my funnel and then I can strategically market to them. And I have campaigns built out for people who have credit challenges. No problem. It's quick to know. Awesome. So it goes into our CRM credit, and then it's going to market to them strategically at specific time points where I have thought might be best in my projected where I, if I had poor credit, what I would be feeling at each of those points to eventually circle them back around. You're declined yeah. based on credit income to debt ratios. I'm going to market to non-subject properties. You lost the deal to RBC. Perfect. You need to find out when RBC payout penalty, when the IRD is going to flip to the next comparable term. So you lost the deal. Okay. Well, it was best for the client. Now you need to input into your tracking when you can contact the client so that you have strategically enough time to do a 120 day rate hold, knowing that their IRD is going to flip into a three month interest. And then you can close it at the least amount of payout penalty before they're up for renewal. Right. This is ninja stuff, by the way. But most people just don't do the work. Okay. You said something about getting data up front, getting a document signed so you can get info from lawyers and accountants. How often do you do that and how effective is that? Like, I love that idea because just make it easy for the client. It's like, great. Because, you know, I'm a busy business owner. Just go get it. Like, you know, and so tell me what's that experience like for your clients and what's the success rate and stuff? So I would like to think our client experience as well, but to be honest, I'd have to ask my team to get the exact numbers, but I know not as many people, we do a lot of first-time buyers, so they may not have people. So it kind of falls into two different buckets, self-employed or investors, then absolutely, they love it. We get it signed and we take care of as much of it as we can for them. The other side of it is that if they don't have a financial advisor, I work in a financial planning office. So if they don't have a financial advisor or a lawyer, well, great. Are they just recently married and do they have a will 
Or do they have a child and there is a potential for an RESP contribution where the government can match it as well? Like there's just so many opportunities that you can contribute value to them outside of just in that mortgage experience. So for me, it's sort of that double-sided of can we get all the documents for you? And also where's an opportunity to refer to enrich your life in general? Okay, so let's say I'm a first-time buyer and I don't have an accountant because it makes sense from the business owner's perspective. Like, gosh, I don't want to track it down. But you ask me if I have a financial planner, and then yeah. so specifically, and then if it's a no, what happens to me? I want to know yeah. two questions. If it's a no, what happens? And if it's a yes, what do you do? So if it's a no, it's just noted as no. So the verbiage, and I'd have to double check what it is now, but the verbiage is essentially will ask you if you have professionals in these specific areas. If you don't. Then if you're looking for, if you're open to a referral for someone who we would trust to take care of you in that way. Right. So like life okay. insurance, right? And then, so if they say, yes, I have a financial planner and you say their name, so then do you do anything with that? So we have a document that they complete with all of their professional, or we complete for them with their professional information. And then we have them sign it. And so that document then that allows you to go to the financial planner and say, hey, can you give me their investment statements and stuff? Is that what you do for potentially? So then, okay, you're a first-time buyer. You have a financial planner. I'm assuming you have something in RRSPs. Are you using RRSPs for your down payment? So do you need to now call your financial advisor and say, can I get my three months investment statements? Because you probably don't have them available or you're going to be going online. How can we help make that a little bit of a frictionless experience for you? And also now we have the opportunity to be introduced to a financial advisor. And we have the right. opportunity to show our level of professional standards with that specific financial advisor, maybe start developing a relationship and say, can you send us exactly what we need? Because how many times are you going back and forth for down payment documents, right? When right. you can just have that direct line to someone who can print you something that in my experience, financial advisors can actually print a more specific uh, you know, history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they can actually get us what we need. And then also, in my experience, financial planners often have relationships with, say, a Manulife or with someone else. So I actually had a super, super aggressive financial planner tell the client not to use me because I wouldn't buy down my rate. And I ended up having a phone conversation with him where he was like swearing at me and yelling at me. It was quite interesting. But the point was, had I not had the confidence to say, let me just talk to your financial advisor and, and see what's going on here. He was actively trying to get her to use a bank rep who was going to give him a kickback was what it all came right. down to. Right. And so I was able to get clarity on that. But my whole point is knowing who they're using and getting ahead of those relationships is really important. So one of the things that recently had happened, well, this has happened to one of my newer agents is, is that the lawyer got the mortgage documents and they're like, oh, this is, you know, I'm not going to say the lender's name. Lender that's actually, I'm sure you use and both use. And like, oh, this lender sucks. Why is the mortgage broker put you there? And then wow. created all kinds of problems for the mortgage broker to have to go back and resell them. If somebody says they have a lawyer, which some of them do, some of them don't, frankly, how do you guide them to somebody that you know is going to, you know, stay in their lane? And also just because again, back to language, what's your language look like for that? So as you can probably guess, I'm a little bit of a control freak. So I ensure that the client has every little bit of information. So I created my own sort of commitment that I have my clients review with me that has a detailed list of exactly the most important parts that they need to know of all of the documents they're going to be signing. So within that, we're talking about debts that need to be paid out, if there are any stat decks or anything that need to be signed, any lender conditions that could relate to a solicitor. So I'm making the solicitor's job considerably easier. I'm telling them about title insurance and I'm putting a link to 
FCT, so they can expect that additional cost. So I actually get a ton of referrals from solicitors because our clients go in fully prepared. This is the statement you're going to need to bring in. Don't worry if your account balance isn't exactly what says on the paperwork. They're going to have you bring in a statement so they can make sure that the correct account and amount is paid. And so we get ahead of a lot of this so that solicitors enjoy working with us. The lender just is who it is, right? There are definitely solicitors who are less than my favorite. And I would say something like this. Okay, absolutely. I'm just going to double check that they are on the lender's approved solicitor list. There are specific ones who don't deal often in real estate who might not be on their list. Like, you know what I mean? Maybe like planting the seed in that way. It really depends. Most of them, I'm Yeah, yeah, because I've actually seen that happen where somebody's got a friend who's a lawyer who's not a real estate lawyer who's just doing it as a favor. But it's like getting somebody who's a real estate lawyer as a favor to, you know, represent you in a legal battle. It's like, that'd be stupid because they're going to make a mess of it. Totally. And it's like less of the telling, more of the asking of, oh, okay, I don't think I've heard. And again, because I'm in a small town, right? So I'm like, I don't think I've heard of that person. Are they a real estate lawyer? Do they do a lot of real estate? All you have to do is create some doubt. That's it. You don't have to do anything, but just a little bit of doubt goes a long way. And reality is you're just trying to create a good experience. There's nothing worse than you working like crazy. Like I often describe it like it's a duck on a pond. On the surface, it looks calm underneath the feet are kicking. What your team is doing behind the scenes is the feet under the water. You don't want at the last minute for that lawyer experience to basically create this like, oh, Christine seemed great, but honestly, the lawyers was a mess. And you have a chance to guide that. And that's why I think it's important. It's not because you're like, I don't do kickbacks or nothing with lawyers. I just want somebody who knows what they're doing. But if they don't know what they're doing, it's going to reflect on you. Everybody points the finger as soon as something goes wrong anyway. Totally. And I think of two things to think of as well is I think as we move through the transactional journey, then understand that that's who we are to realtors right? Yeah. Like that's exactly who we are to realtors in the transaction. We're the next one along the phase. So be mindful of how you're treating those realtor relationships as well. And I think for me, the focus really is on dealing with us. We don't want the lender dealing with the solicitor. Like we want them dealing with them at least amount as possible. So we do pre-funding where we say to the client, they're specifically designed. So let's just say it's going to be a refinance or a purchase or this property tax adjustment. I have an animated video that says, you will see a property tax adjustment and then there's a link to it so they can understand what is a property tax adjustment. And then in the animated video, it says property taxes are paid in July. It covers from January to December of that same year. So they are going in so prepared that the solicitors don't even care about who the lender is because the client is so well-equipped with knowledge that they're not dumping on them. So if clients say back to me, oh, that my solicitor said that this lender is blah, blah, blah. I will say, yeah, they're particular. They want their I's dotted and their T's crossed. And I have no problem with that. They might want a little bit more paperwork in order for you to get a higher quality product. So if that is not what you're looking for, like there's ways that you can manage those, but to circle back around to the solution. so good. That language is ridiculous. It's like, <laughs> if you guys are listening, it's like, honest to God, go back and listen to this episode again, because there's so much, I'm literally messaging Nikki. I'm like, clip this section, clip this section, clip. She's like, holy crap, what's going on over there? As we're talking, I'm like, clip it, clip it all. Like, I'm not clip the whole thing, but like these sections, clip the lawyer section. This is such good stuff. So, so okay, let me finish this one about okay. my thought, just because I think it is valuable for other people. You have to understand what the solicitor is going through. So you want to put yourself in their shoes and say, okay, and also the client experience, once you've given this up, does the client know what they're looking for for home insurance? Has the insurance binder been 
ordered or has been sent to the lawyer notary, I built all of my pre-funding stuff with my lawyers and notaries. I said, what are the most common friction points that you guys come up against? If you could change one thing, if you could fix one thing in your relationship with your mortgage broker, what would it be? Is it expired ID? Do your clients know at least three weeks in advance that they're going to need to have ID that's not expired? What about job titles? If FCT is involved in the closing, what specific job title have you used? And how can you get ahead of any friction point of example? We put Canfor, they put Canadian Forest products. And then it's a mismatch. FCG is like, whoa, this is not what we're expecting. Yes. I can't tell you how many times, or like RN and carried or something like that, where there's a bit of a disconnect. And so for us, we copy and paste the job title, which should match the job letter. And we send that to the lawyer or notary in advance. We send them, if they've taken the life and disability insurance, because that's a conversation we know that they have to have, we send them any debts that need to be paid out, any solicitor conditions that are going to be required so that they can get ahead of them, any like ILA, and everybody's different. Some people will send the IDs in advance, some people will send commitments, but I think having a really controlled process at that point, what I hear most often from other brokers is that subjects come off or their broker conditions are met, and then they hold their breath until it closes. And then they're already moving on to the next pipeline because that's probably where their most fulfillment is in that beginning stage, right? Because they're passing that on to somebody else. But there's such an opportunity for client experience at that point that you're giving that up. You can work so hard. So going back to this concept of the net experience, you can be like eight, nine, 11. You're just like providing this amazing experience to the client. Is there any amazing like signing experience? Probably not. You're going to elevate this level of experience as high as you can. And then at the signing appointment, it's going down. They don't want to take money. It does not feel good to take all of that savings out of their bank account and to give it to the lawyer. That part of it doesn't feel good. Signing and physically and emotionally putting pen to paper on all of this transaction is going to be an emotional overload for them. Understand what the client is going through and how you can manage that as best you can, because the lawyer's taking it down a notch. They are right. no doubt taking down that experience. You got to compensate for that. That's amazing. Okay. So man, we got to do this again another time. And my last question for you is, so when you say pre-funding, so you're basically, it's the work in advance before the lawyer. So the stuff that you kind of do to make it easy for the lawyer to make it less confusing for the client. That's what you're referring to, right? Yes. So again, every part of my stage is very, very specifically placed. So I sign my documents at a different stage of the process than others do. I do it right before subject removal. When subjects come off for our clients, again, different markets. So I'm mindful of that. But when subjects come off, all things are done because psychologically my client can move to the next stage of the process. There are no lingering documents needed. I mean, rarely if we need an extra pay sub or something like that, and almost always something goes wrong with those. So for me, we do all of the work in a condensed format. We don't have to go back for more documents. We don't have things come up. We get pre-funding audits all the time. No problem. We already have all the answers because we've done all the work up front. So at the time of the commitment signing, they already know how their mortgage is compounded. They know the debts to be paid out. They know all those things. They know about MPP. I get ahead of a lot of it at the documents to sign stage. And then I remind them at the pre-funding stage. And I say, this is what you're going to need. So for example, a pad form can't be from a company account for all lenders. So we need to know that in advance. And what about, are there any other joint owners on the company account or sorry, on your bank account? What's the address on your void check? All of these are situations that have come up and can come up, which can be disruptive to the process that the client shouldn't even know can be disruptive. They just know that we're getting ahead of these. So again, is there a chance you could be politically exposed? Our clients all know that's going to be asked at the lawyer's office. So they're already prepared. 
or it doesn't throw them off, right? So then, yeah, the pre-funding is very much tailored to their situation, but within a framework of the basics and pad form. So if you're going to your bank to get a pad form, some monoline lenders require that it's stamped. So you're going to go in the client experience. They're going to say, oh, can you bring a pre-authorized debit form? If it's a less than ideal solicitor, they're going to bring it in. They're going to, oh, shoot, you need to get a bank stamp. Okay, no problem. So now they're going to go to the bank. They're going to get stamped. They're going to come back and they're going to have taken time away from work. It's just going to be a little bit of a friction point for them. Right. So rather than doing that, the client is going to know to ask the question and maybe it doesn't need to be stamped, but they're already going to have asked the question. If that makes sense. Right, right. That's amazing. Okay. So where can people find you online? Probably best on email. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to really limit my social time, but Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. I'm loving LinkedIn content there and Twitter a little bit. I tried Twitter. Ron Butler convinced me to go on there, but I just left. I was like, this is such an angry people. Ron's like, I love it. I'm like, I can't do it, man. It just makes me want to cry at night. I'm like, you know, a lot of the people filter the content for me and it's just another happy place. I've done a really strategic thing with my social accounts and specifically Instagram. I go on Instagram every morning now and mm -hmm. I favorited all of my favorite motivational people and just people who I really enjoy. I'll leave you with this because otherwise I'll just keep talking. But my goal for last year was to stay close to those who feel like sunshine. And I literally wrote a list because I'm a list person of all of the people who fill my bucket as much as I feel like I can fill theirs. Like it's a reciprocal relationship. Yeah. And I've just been really mindful to just keep that circle really close. And I only really get, you know, input from specific people. And it's amazing. It's super positive. I feel uplifted. Right, in the right. morning. Like it's a great experience. So I think social media, like anything in life, will be how you choose to experience it. So be right. mindful of what you're digesting and what you're putting into your unconscious mind. Yeah, that's really good. Okay, Christine, thanks for chatting with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, hopefully you got some inspiration from that conversation with Christine. I know I did. One of the things that I explained to Christine that we're working on for our brokerage are closing specialists. So somebody can take a file from commitment to close. And I really think that you can create an amazing client experience there and let the broker focus on the broker side of it. And uh, so I'll be working with Christine on that. And I cannot wait to get that going. It's just going to be flipping amazing. In this next segment, I'm going to be talking to Ben McCabe about how reverse mortgage deal sizes are going down. Have a listen and I'll be back shortly. Hey, Ben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott. So, hey, what's the topic you want to talk about today? Yeah, so I don't know if you saw the article from uh, Robin Buster the other day about how reverse mortgage deal sizes are going down. It's something that uh, we're seeing kind of across the board in the industry right now and thought it might be a good idea to do a bit of a deeper dive into kind of what's going on and why reverse mortgage deal sizes are lower than they were called six months ago and what we can do about it. Right. Okay, cool. So, yeah, and if you're listening to this, Rob McLister is a mortgage broker built a couple companies. I actually had my mortgage license with him temporarily for a period. I joined his company way back in the day. He writes for the Global Mail as well as his Mortgage Logic, which is sort of like articles for mortgage nerds. And it's really good. Like it's yeah, well-researched. The guy knows his stuff. But so yeah, let's jump into that and talk about. So what are the reasons you see that the reverse mortgage loan to value has dropped in the last six months? Yeah. So number one is actually just customers themselves are choosing to take less. Okay, so obviously rates are up and reverse mortgages rates are up about two and a half to three percent from where they were like at this time last year. So whereas let's say six months ago or longer than that, customers were really taking the full amount we were authorizing for them. One of the things we're seeing more and more these days is that customers are really just taking what they need, for example, to pay out an existing mortgage. And then they're leaving that whatever the rest of the authorized balance is available for a subsequent draw in the future, but they're not taking it up front. So the first thing we're seeing is really just actually customer driven. They're choosing to take less. 
right? We've talked about this on past SC experts, but once you've approved them, if they've been approved for more, they can like a line of credit call and you drop yeah. them in their account in 24 hours. And brokers so get caught the same. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. So what's another reason that you see the loan to values for reverse mortgages have gone down? Well, just in terms of the like the actual authorized loan amount, why that's going to go down. I mean, I think the second point is pretty obvious that property prices are starting to slide, especially uh, if you move outside of cities and in certain like you know lakefront locations where we saw really really big property price growth the last couple of years. As those start to go down, obviously we can authorize less money for a given loan to value ratio that we're able to authorize. And I think across the industry, we're actually factoring in you know further property price slides over the next call it twelve to eighteen months, being conservative there. So the nature of the property market is going to mean that we're going to authorize less money. Right. Okay. So borrowers taking less, you authorize less money based on property values going down. Any other reasons that you see why uh, yeah. loan to values are down? So the last point is really around the loan to value ratio itself. And it has to do with the fact that rates are higher than they were. So if, since rates are two and a half, three percent higher than they were last year, that means the mortgage balance is growing a lot quicker than the same initial mortgage balance last year. So we as lenders are trying to basically obviously manage for the risk that that mortgage balance will ever get close to the value of the home, right? So if the balance is growing a lot quicker, which it is this year than it was last year or six months ago even, we need to ratchet down the starting point to basically manage for the same level of risk. So that means that the actual loan to value ratio that we're able to authorize for a given borrower, let's say a 70-year-old single person in the city is less than it was before. For that example, that borrower will get about 6% loan-to-value ratio less than they were getting six months ago. And I think that's a pretty consistent deduction across the industry right now. Right. And so when you say 6%, you're talking if the property's worth, you know, a million dollars, that's a good chunk. It could of be 60,000 bucks, yeah. Yeah, it can really affect how much somebody can take out of their place. So, okay. So any other sort of thoughts? I mean, I think Rob, obviously, you know, the guys seem to have his finger on the pulse of what's happening. And so do you see this changing anytime soon or only when we see rates stabilize in prices or what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think the first thing that we want to see is prices starting to stabilize. As we look at appraisal reports, not seeing you know that declining box tick in terms of the price trends. You know, that'll get us a little bit more comfortable around you know, the property price stability. So at least we can remove that from the equation. And then obviously as rates you know, start to stabilize and you know, ideally if they come down in the future, then we'll be able to see those loan value ratios tick up again. But in the interim, there is a solution that we're using a lot more and more over the last couple of months, which is actually to put a second mortgage behind a reverse mortgage in obviously in first position. You know, I think for a lot of borrowers, if they have a large existing mortgage in the first place, you know, what they're trying to do is to cut down on the total payment that they're making every month, right? right. They're just they're really managing it's basically for cash, cash flow. payements. Yeah, cash flow. Exactly. Right. They're managing for cash flow. So if we can replace, let's say, a you know, two hundred thousand dollar existing first mortgage with let's say $150,000 reverse and then a $50,000 second, they're still in a much better cash position than they were before, right? And that's what they're managing for. And so that's something we're doing a lot more and more lately is putting a second behind the first. And, you know, ideally what can happen is, you know, in one year, two years, if rates come down, obviously if we see a bit of a bounce back in property prices and the fact that borrowers, as they get older, we can authorize more money for them. You know, ideally in a couple of years, we could actually use the reverse mortgage and refinance out that second. And roll in the second mortgage. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Okay, cool. So if you guys are listening to this, I encourage you to check out Ben and his team at Bloom Finance. It's bloomfin.ca. I know that you guys have been doing lots of reverse mortgages. Ben, thanks for coming to explain to us the differences in loan to value, why they're down, how you can strategize around it. And then, you know, what the exit strategy, I like that too. You have an exit strategy for how to get out of that later on, you know, at that second mortgage. So thanks, brother. Thanks, Scott. 
All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode with Christine and with Ben. Hopefully you got a couple ideas. I tell you, as I said, there were some really great sections in this conversation. If you go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com, you can actually keyword search all of our past episodes. And you can even, when you keyword search it, it shows the text on the screen, which means you can copy the text and paste it into a Word doc. So literally it's like transcribed for you. Go check that out at ilovemortgagebrokering.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you to our sponsors for helping us put these shows together for you. And I will see you on the next episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.